Hello everyone, welcome to the Pharmacy Magazine Talking Covid podcast, where we look back at all things Covid over the past week or so. Uh, this is our eighth edition of the pod, believe it or not, which only goes to show just how long this crisis has dragged on. My name is Richard Thomas, editor of Pharmacy Magazine. Joining me as usual on the pod are Rob Darricott, editor of P3 Pharmacy Magazine, and Arthur Walsh, editor of Pharmacy Network News. Uh, Neil Trainis is away, as the papers would say. Uh, he's on holiday this week, no doubt working on his novel. So welcome both. How are you, Rob? First of all, suitably relaxed after the long weekend? Uh, well, I've got, a, I've got a magazine I'm putting together, Richard, so I'm not particularly relaxed. But um, uh, interesting you said this is number eight. I mean, you know, the way things are going, you'll soon be introducing number 58. And ho- let's hopefully we're, n- we're not still doing what we're doing now. That is true. We might have to change the name of it at some point. Well, I hope we do anyway. Uh, But this COVID crisis, it does seem to be dragging on there, that's for sure. Um, But what's it like in in London, Arthur? Is life returning to normal in Stepney? Uh, A little bit in that you can sort of meet people outside in in small groups while while distancing, which even, you know, it's not quite normal life, but it's a bit of a lifesaver, to be honest, after you've been cooped up. And uh, especially in the weather we've been having, it's been great. That's true. Uh, Weather's been gorgeous. Uh, So let's get on with it then. Uh, We'll do good week, bad week uh, in the pod this week. And later in our interview slots, I'm delighted to say uh, we have a very special guest, none other than the president of the RPS, Sandra Gidley, who has some really interesting things to say about the COVID crisis, how the society responded. And she also shares her thoughts on where pharmacy goes from here. But first, chaps, pharmacy in the news again the last couple of days. Good story, terrible headline in today's times. Community chemists, community chemists tell Boris they face financial ruin over higher drugs bills and PPE costs. So over 1,000 pharmacists have written to the PM uh, in a plea for help. And the NPA's Mark Lionett quoted as saying, pharmacy owners would have been better off if they closed their doors to the public. But also in the Telegraph yesterday, I think, there was a piece about the soaring price of antidepressants and sertraline in particular has been in, in short supply again. And Leila Hanbeck from AIM making the point in the paper about the problems that this causes for pharmacists, both in terms of the financial impact and the difficulties in swapping patients to an alternative in this therapeutic class. But pharmacy making the headlines a lot at the moment, isn't it, Rob? That's that's good to see these issues are being highlighted, even if the issues are, are rather serious. They're serious, but I guess uh, we might talk about it a bit later on when, we, when we've heard from uh, the president. But um, it's still a, about um, these intractable reimbursement issues, isn't it, that seems to be making, making waves. I'm not sure I'm particularly... I think one of the great things that, that's happened, and I know it's been very difficult for frontline teams, has been that... that you know, uh, although it's changed somewhat, access to the public has broadly been maintained. And most members of the public have been, uh, you know, pretty good about it. I, you know, I'm not sure following the, the doctors and, and managing that kind of access early on was was going to be a good thing. But, you know, hey, that's it's a view, isn't it? And I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, clearly haven't been doing it, so I don't know. But maybe it'd be good to hear what, uh, what, uh, pharmacists generally think about that, whether it would have been a good thing or not. Yes, it would. Arthur, what, what do you make of the, the press coverage in recent weeks and, and still ongoing? Yeah, well, it's interesting to see something like 
sertraline where we've been tracking that for you know weeks and months and like the, all these sort of complications of the supply chain have led to pharmacists paying you know vastly more than they normally would for it it's interesting to see something like that that you would think would be very sort of uh, particular to our sector of the press getting into the, the national press. Indeed it is. Um, some big issues, as I said, that are that are ongoing. Um, but let's move on to good week, bad week, shall we? Um, Arthur, how about you kicking off this week? Who's had a bad week in pharmacy for you? Uh, I think bad week for the BSA in England, the Business Services Authority. Um, they've had sort of noticed pretty much since the start of the pandemic that the whole prescription charge model and getting patients to, to sign forms in particular isn't really viable while um, A, while you know pharmacy teams are so inundated and B, it could also pose an infection risk. And so pharmacies are now getting their, um, their FP34, FP34 bills for March, isn't it? And they're, getting, they're seeing a huge amount of um, prescription switches, scripts being switched from... Um, from exempt to chargeable because they've not been signed and it just seems you know that a little bit more pragmatism is needed to to, to stop this yeah no i think right at the beginning of all this there was a, there was definitely a move to have prescription charges abolished altogether i think weren't they for the for the reasons that you said but nothing nothing happened with that and and contractors are beginning to to pay the financial price unfortunately it's crazy, isn't it? We've been dealing with that now as an issue for 25 years. T- 25 years. I, you know, it was an issue for uh, for me when I, when I was working at Moss. So that was the late 1990s. 20 plus years later, we're still, you know, seeing this as an issue for pharmacy. It's just crazy. Crazy, crazy, crazy. It should have been sorted years and years and years ago. Yeah, it should have been. And, and maybe for a future pod, we, we could debate prescription charges in, in general because we seem to have been talking about that for, uh, for goodness knows how long. Um, Rob, who's had a bad week for you apart from the Business Services Authority? Well, I think, um, I, think I don't think Superdrug have had a great week. Uh, so they uh, launched online um, access to the public for... Um, antibody tests for COVID-19 and they were online for not too long and then they were offline again and uh, the initial story was uh, they'd run out which I guess is plausible but then you know given the statements from Public Health England about warning people about a buying them and I guess also underneath that reiterating the warning about people selling them directly to the public I think uh, um, that was a a sales opportunity that came and went very very quickly and given that the attention that it, that it got from one or two MPs in particular who seem to have taken against it very very quickly that's you know not, not been a great not been a great week there because yeah, we don't know what impact it has on the accuracy if someone does the test themselves as opposed a health worker carries it out yeah indeed and it's all then disconnected from from you know all these kind of national systems that are being set up uh, you know, and it's, it's always the issue, isn't it, about it. There's a fine balance here between public interest in their own health and wanting to take responsibility and trying to establish a kind of national system in which, you know, the public health authorities know know what's going on. I can see that I can see the challenge. Yeah, it's been 
confusing right from the start. We've talked about this before, haven't we, several times. It's been confusing right from the start. And I don't quite understand why why Superdrug got it in the neck, as opposed to some of the other uh, companies, online doctors associated with pharmacies that have been supplying this. But, you know, for the reasons that you, you, you said, Rob, uh, it's a complicated situation and, well, it's, it became further, further complicated as a result of last week. So, yeah, bad week for Superdrug, who copped it there. For me, um, bad week for the drugs chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. So, bear with me on this one. Now, these drugs have had a long and uh, largely uneventful existence as treatments for, for malaria, certain autoimmune disorders. I believe they're extracted, I did look this up, from the Jesuit bark, from the Cinchona tree, I think, if my pharmacognosy is, is, is any good. But anyway, this all changed with COVID, didn't it, where they've been touted as, as possible preventative or, or, or therapeutic treatments as part of a, a repurposing approach, looking at existing drugs to tackle COVID. Now, Sad person that I am, I did spend some of the long weekend looking at where we were with this. And I, I reckon there are over 200 clinical trials that have looked at these drugs or are looking at these drugs for COVID. Now, a lot of them are what are called preprints. I didn't know what this was. Apparently, a preprint is a, is a trial that hasn't been peer reviewed. It's accelerated to kind of get the research up there. But even so, um, there's still absolutely no evidence that I could see yet that these treatments are either safe or effective for treating or preventing COVID-19. Indeed, there was a Lancet study, I think last week, that linked them to higher rates of mortality and heart arrhythmias among hospital patients with the disease. So randomised trials urgently needed. We need some, some clarity here about the research. And I think a large trial started in the UK last week. But with all this going on, what's not needed is when a clown like Donald Trump or Elon Musk then goes on the record on TV as saying that these take, they take these drugs to ward off coronavirus. I mean, did, did you hear the press conference when Trump said he was doing this? You, you, could, the, you could hear the gasp from the White House less press lobby. Uh, it was extraordinary. Do you think he what? Do you think he was? Do you think he was actually taking them? Because it's it's hard to know. I definitely think he was. You think he was? I don't think he was. I don't think he was at all. Yeah, I think. Uh, do you? No. Why not? Because I would a doc would a doctor knowing knowing the evidence dubious as it is for not dubious generally for hydroxychloroquine but for its use here prescribe that product to the president of the free world with all his other conditions that we know about and don't know about it just struck me as is he really taking it or not so I'd vote that he wasn't at all do you know yeah whether he was not or not I mean, like, would he override his doctor's advice? Would the doctor go against the... Yeah, you, you, you could be right there, Rob. But I think, you know, like Arthur says, really, the, the point is he's saying it anyway because, it, you know, it has, it has some real consequences. Uh, these, these drugs have some nasty cardiac side effects if used inappropriately. And I think they were, they were reports of deaths in the States when he mentioned it the first time. But also serious consequences for, for patients for whom chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine are, are vital uh, because there's a surge of prescriptions in the US, which has happened, could lead to shortages here. And I think there have already been reports 
uh, in the UK about people finding it hard to get hold of hydroxychloroquine, which was uh, granted a concessionary yep. price last week. So, uh, and I think it's used for psoriasis, isn't it? So, some real problems here. Lupus, yeah, lupus. Yeah, like I'm not a clinician myself, so but is there a very plausible clinical reason why this drug has gotten so much attention and and been, you know, studied so heavily with regards to COVID? I think it's because Rob might be able to back me up here because it's going to stretch my pharmacology. Is it because it, they dampen the the immune response? So <laughs> Rob is not helping me out at all. Then. I think it's because. Oh, I, I, I've lost you, Richard. I lost you there. <laughs> I think Arthur, it's 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 because they dampen the immune response, and the immune response obviously goes into overdrive with with COVID. So I think I. I think they felt there there was a link there. Um, any pharmacist with better pharmacology knowledge than me will can get in touch to to correct me. So, um, yeah, bad week. Yeah, they're not miracle cures for COVID. These drugs, far from it. They're they're in short supply for the people who really need them. So uh, for me, bad week for chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. <laughs> Before the bank holiday, I managed to catch up with RPS president Sandra Gidley, who uh, managed to carve a slot in her extremely busy diary. So grateful to her for that. It's been a a busy few months for the society with its members and non-members right at the heart of the fight against coronavirus. It was an interesting conversation and this is what she had to say. So Sandra, thanks very much for coming on the pod. Um, How are you? Are you well? I'm well I'm fine is the stock answer but the reality is I'm knackered frustrated can't wait to hold my grandchildren and probably feeling like every other pharmacist in the country at the moment yeah absolutely um so what have the last couple of months been like for you at the RPS well it's been um very very different because obviously we've had to do things uh differently we closed the offices on the 23rd of March um by, oh, I think we closed them just before. Um, but we'd actually had a trial run um, with resilience planning um, before the government announced that we were going into lockdown. Um, so we knew that people could work from home. We had an experiment with people working from home. Um, and when it became clear that that was going to be COVID normal, um, we worked very hard to make sure that all our staff had the equipment they needed so they could be in touch and um, for some that's difficult because uh, some of our staff, junior staff, live in a bed sit in London, they're balancing their laptop on their knee during the day, um, not having contact with people. So, you know, people like me, relatively comfortable house, you don't always appreciate the problems other people are having. Some people had um, two parents working and were, were juggling the kids being home at school. So all of these things um, presented challenges. But the really big thing we did was decided to suspend business as usual and reorganise the teams and COVID was the only game in town. So all of our work since um, mid-March really has been entirely focused on COVID-19 and trying to help our members and pharmacists generally um, providing resources they need um, so that they know where to go and also what I've been really keen on and what's what's worked really well is we've been member-led so when our members have um, reported problems we've looked at that every day spotted the emerging problems and 
trying to be really proactive. It's, it's a new way of working for us in a way. We normally take ages. Um, and I think we all quite like this new way of working. So I'm hoping we're going to be a bit more agile after this as well. Yeah, I guess the situation has forced a lot of us to be innovative and creative, perhaps more so or quicker than we might have been otherwise. So I, I, I understand that. Um, when did you first realise the seriousness of the situation, that there was a, a pandemic on its way? And was there any kind of planning for that? Well, I don't think anybody planned for a pandemic, really. I mean, clearly the government didn't. So, you know, expecting every organisation to is difficult. But certainly um, at the beginning of the year, I think when people started coming back from Italy and it became clear that there was a real problem in Italy, that started um, some of the thinking about what we might do, how we might do things differently. And um, certainly we were already, um, before lockdown, encouraging people to um, work from home and we've made decisions to conduct uh, some meetings remotely because that's the sensible thing to do um, to protect your uh, staff, really. And that's worked uh, much better than I thought it would, having to chair an all-day assembly meeting um, using Skype was not something I was looking forward to um, and I was incredibly bossy and didn't have uh, <laughs> is that hard to hard to believe um, but, it, but it actually worked quite well and I, I don't think we would want to go back to that all the time because I think that face-to-face -face interaction is really important but we're also acutely aware at the RPS that our members are going out every day. They may be a critical care pharmacist, you know, really um, on that front line. Um, they may be care homes, and that's a, another disaster um, that is uh, slowly unfolding. We don't know the extent of. Or community pharmacists like myself. So you know, all of our members are out there doing the day job uh, with the stresses and strains that causes um a about keeping safe and b about the increased pressure of work they've had so we've been trying to support them in that yes now your, your focus obviously through the crisis as you said um has been on, on, on member support but also you've opened up um, a lot of your services and support to non-members which was an interesting move could you explain your thinking behind that well, sometimes you have to do the right thing. And um, so we've got a very good COVID hub, which people were referring to. And if you think about it, it's being paid for by our members. But sometimes you have to look at the bigger picture and it seemed right and proper to open some of these resources up so that they're available to all pharmacists. And I hope once we're after after the period of madness that maybe some pharmacists will say you know RPS did a did an okay job in that I quite like their resources they're easy to find you know all in one place um I I might sort of pay back and become a member but that wasn't the thinking it was really um there wasn't anywhere else at the time that had um advice for all pharmacists in all sectors so we felt that was quite important the other resource we um, have made available is the MEP which is uh, medicines ethics and practice which is, is like a bible for many people and some members were a bit upset that um, they saw a member benefit as being given away but the um, it's coming towards the end of this edition anyway 
And again, we thought it was an opportunity to um, provide a service to pharmacists um, who may not be aware of the MEP. And uh, again, they may realise, um, even if they don't want to become members, they may want to buy their own copy afterwards. So that wasn't the thinking. The thinking was about getting as much information out there as possible and being supportive to the profession. Because um, as the professional leadership body, we do have... I think a wider responsibility clearly we're very focused on our members member led but we have a wider responsibility to the profession and it was a case of standing up and being counted on that yes and, and although not the reason you did it exceptional times call, call for exceptional measures but have you noticed uh, uh, an upturn in membership since you you opened up some of these um, support services do you know, um, we've got a, an update coming up at a meeting, so I don't know the answer to that question at the moment. That sort of thing isn't just isn't being tracked every week because literally all the staff are concentrating so hard on the COVID-related um, stuff. Um, even people who usually work in the membership department have been redeployed to doing some of the comms around COVID and putting some of the materials together. So as I say, because we've um, completely reorganised the way we've worked, some of the, that business of usual ha really has um, gone on the back burner. Now the society's really had to lead from the front, hasn't it, in many regards during this crisis. And I'm thinking of lobbying for, for key worker recognition and, and, and the death in service um, fiasco, etc. Um, so what do you think of the, the government's approach to pharmacy during the pandemic? And, and how does it compare in England, say, to uh, the other home nations? Oh, there's a question. Um, it's very varied across all of the other nations. But take death in service um, as an example on that. Um, I had a chat with the pharmacy minister and I knew that she was really upset that uh, we haven't um, been included. And the whole thing, I think, was very badly handled by NHS England. I also know that um, the Chief Pharmaceutical Officer, Keith Ridge, was really angry about um, the fluffiness around uh, pharmacists. So, um, and he said, well, you know, do whatever you can. So uh, we decided to write to Boris. You can't get much higher than that. I don't think we've ever written to the Prime Minister before. Um, and obviously other bodies were doing their thing as well. But we did get um, I think quite a good answer, which means that pharmacists are included. This is in England initially. Um, pharmacists are included, but also their staff, because we, we really do need to think about the pharmacy team, because it's not just pharmacists putting themselves out there every day. It's every um, technician, dispensing assistant, healthcare assistant, assistant they're all doing it. Um, Funnily enough, the grey area was locums. And as you know, I'm a community pharmacy locum, but we've just got confirmation um, uh, that locums are included. Uh, I, I, did say to my, I did say to my husband, you know, if I die of COVID, uh, you know, here's where you go to claim 60 grand. And he went, oh, charming. <laughs> um, but actually, Scotland beat us to it. Their first minister um, uh, uh, confirmed it very quickly. And I think Wales were... Oh, I think that was the way around it. Was, all the countries did it at um, different times, but all got there eventually. And that's sometimes the problem with healthcare being devolved. So we've been trying to produce things that can be, you know, tartanized or dragonized or what have you, if need be. But the core needs are all the same. So that was something that I think we were quite 
um, quick off the mark on. Initially, the key worker recognition was difficult. So we um, worked with the British Retail Consortium and um, produced a letter that could be handed into supermarkets. Unfortunately, some members of staff did have a little bit of flack, um, but we then worked hard to follow up. And I think most supermarkets are aware of that. And I know that the pharmacy minister herself has been very frustrated that sometimes pharmacists don't get a mention. Um, Boris has mentioned us now. Um, we, we do increasingly get included, but um, it is sometimes frustrating and it's still a frustration and there's a lot of work to do so that when they talk about doctors and nurses, they don't forget pharmacists are the third largest um, profession. So that's, I think, really um, important. And we've also done a lot of work around PPE and ensuring that's available to uh, pharmacies. Unfortunately, they still have to buy it. I think that's still a bit of a work in um, progress. And what's been slightly frustrating is other professions seem to have things thrown at them almost. Um, and pharmacy seems to have to struggle. Now, obviously, we don't have anything to do with payments, but I'm aware that PSNC are also working um, really hard to try and ensure that pharmacists don't go broke because they've had to you know pay a massive drug bill because of the peak in volume um and they're faced with paying their wholesalers paying their staff uh, at a time when things are already very fragile so um i do think the minister wants to learn from this and join things up and do things better uh, but the proof of that pudding will be in the eating Yes, it, it certainly will. And, and maybe we should look at the future, Sandra. I mean, this must be, I'm sure you'd agree, an opportunity for, for the profession to maybe take a fresh look, both at taking the fight to COVID going forward, because I'm sure we're not out of the woods on that yet, but also the practice model in general and, and improving patient care in a broader sense. If you like, kind of leveraging the, the, the tremendous resilience that the community pharmacy sector has shown during the crisis. Um, what should the profession be doing now with a view to the future? I think the profession needs to come together as never before really, um, put aside any vested interest in any particular organisation um, and decide on um, a few clear wins and part of that I think is making use better use of uh, the skills that a community pharmacist have and I would argue that those skills are clinical um, you know every day I am making clinical decisions just because I haven't got a diploma after my name doesn't mean that there, there isn't a huge amount of um, value I give every day and I think um, there has been a recognition behind the scenes that when the surgeries shut their doors, um, where did everybody go? Pharmacies stayed open and it really was the front line for, of primary care. And I think we, um, it's not been articulated, but that has been noticed and it has been respected. We didn't put the shutters up. Um, we just got on with doing the best we could for for patients so we've um, just issued a survey and I'd encourage anybody listening to um, complete that and what we're asking are a few questions about is there anything we should keep from COVID um, anything that's been done differently that works but actually how can we use this to 
improve things, join things up? Um, what are your ideas for the future? And we're trying not to spend an awful lot of time about this. So the summit's on the 9th of June, I believe. Um, and again, I would encourage people to get involved in that because I think the more people that participate and say what they think, the clearer the ideas we have about what people really want going forward. And that's actually um, almost a product of the way we've worked during COVID because people have been funneling in their problems. Uh, that's looked at every day, what has come into um, our you know, pharmacist support helpline. And then we've been able to kind of identify what the priorities are for the staff to work on and i have to say the staff at rps have been absolutely brilliant we're working cross country better than ever before and um, a lot of them have said we want this to continue afterwards um harking back to the pharmacy cuts of years ago uh, what was interesting then was that the government announced that they didn't just want to talk to psnc um, they wanted to consult consult all of the other pharmacy bodies um, and then kind of feed that in that um, way of doing things seems to be dropped and it's a frustration to me because BMA never complete the GP contract without involving RCGP. So um, I do think government needs to look at more inclusive ways of working because um, I know PSNC have a job to do. It's all about negotiations. This is not a criticism because I know they have been working really hard through this crisis. But it would, I think, help if um, there was able to be um, a clear plan for the profession and the PSNC uh, worked to that. So jo again, joining up everything. And uh, you mentioned the, the magnificent work by community pharmacists and their teams um, under the most intense pressure and the care that they provided their, their patients and customers under that pressure really was second to none, frontline, true frontline of the NHS in primary care. Uh, do you have a message for um, community pharmacists? I would just like to say to each and every community pharmacist and their, their teams, thank you. Um, the public don't always say thank you, um, but I do think the work has uh, mostly been recognised. I know that every time I've had a, a rumpy customer, um, people coming afterwards have gone out of their way to be complimentary and say nice things. So, um, you know, I know you're tired because uh, I am. Um, and uh, I know those of you who are contractors have other worries, but I, I would like to just say thank you. And you may not think your efforts have been recognised, but um, they have. So finally, Sandra, coming, coming to the end uh, of, the, of the chat now, what's it been like for you personally? You mentioned you know, you're a community pharmacist locum, um, very busy doing that and juggling with your, your president's role. How have you managed to, uh, to do the two? <laughs> And keep sane in the process well you're assuming i've ever been sane i think um, <laughs> so, um no, seriously though uh, it, it is has been tricky and um i took a long look at my diary once we went into lockdown 
and um, I knew some events weren't going to happen. So I freed up quite a lot of days. Um, I didn't know. I've been quite surprised. I thought there may be fewer pharmacies at risk of closure. Um, sorry. Um, sorry, I thought there might be more uh, pharmacies at risk of closure, you know, pharmacists self-isolating and all the rest of it. So certainly I, I've been um, using community pharmacy. So I try and do, um, unless I've got RPS clear commitments, um, probably about three days, uh, quite long days in community pharmacy a week. And that really keeps me in touch with what is going on. I think that, that is so important that um, whoever's um, president of the RPS gets out and about. Uh, so I work Locum work suits me because I see different settings, I see um, different problems, and um, it gives me real insight into what life is really like for people. That's important. Um, but I try and organize my RPS meetings, conversations um, for the same couple of days. I've tried doing my press casts uh, in my lunch hour. That is one thing I would love to see continue, but I don't think will. Um, but sometimes dodgy phone connections mean that those have, have been quite fraught. Um, we've been on regular meetings with the minister. That was working well until she changed the time, which is really frustrating if you're working in community pharmacy and it's not your lunch hour. Um, but it's constant juggling, constant um, keeping the um, kind of lines of communication open with everybody. And um, I think the, the downside is, you know, normally people think presidents as the people who rock up to all the nice events we've had to cancel our science summit um, um actually at the moment it feels like it's kind of 99 percent perspiration and only well i don't think i don't think there's even one percent of uh you know light on the horizon and some of those nice things you do when you're going out meeting the profession and um saying thank you face to face well, considering how busy you are, Sandra, thank you so much for sparing the time uh, to join us on the pod. That was really interesting. Um, stay well, and uh, hopefully we can catch up soon when all this is over. Thank you. Thank you very much, Richard. So that was Sandra Gidley there. Um, interesting, wasn't it, to hear about how the society changed its focus during the COVID crisis to support uh, the profession and led from the front in many ways. And also fascinating to hear some thoughts from Sandra on the future and where pharmacy goes from here. What did you make of, uh, of it, Rob, what Sandra had to say? Well, I, you know, I, I was listening to, listen to what the president had to say and I was... I suppose the last bit, really, when she's talking about uh, the organisations kind of coming together and talking about the future, uh, articulated for me in a, in a kind of nutshell what the problem is. If we don't know now where, where the future lies, then isn't that an issue for the profession generally? We're now starting to think about the, you know, how pharmacy has been treated over the course of the pandemic while people have been doing a magnificent sterling job uh, day after day. Uh, serving the public in the in the, the communities where they are and and yet we we are now sort of coming together and saying what does the future look like and I, I think there is a disconnect and when people start to say well why do they not understand what we're doing you know is that because we don't really know where we're going or, or, or what the point of all that is I've been trying to think about this for for some time and uh, I'm thinking about putting something together uh, for the for the, for the magazine to, to take this a bit further when I've considered my thoughts a bit more. But I mean, for me, that was in a nutshell what the problem is. We don't quite know what the future looks like and we perhaps we should.
at least have an idea where we'd like to be. And would you say there's, you know, issues that have come to the fore during the crisis that should point a clear way and you might necessarily need to have something like like, like this for yeah i mean i think i think i think things like that that access point you know that um that people have uh been accessing pharmacies for more than than we think they've been accessing pharmacies over the past few years for is important but we haven't captured you know i'm in lots of surveys now about what exactly it is that pharmacies have been doing um but you know for me that's an issue if we identified a role around urgent and immediate care, for instance, then we might have IT systems that would capture the immediate and urgent care that pharmacies were providing in a way that we don't have we don't have currently. Um, if we decided that the future was about monitoring long-term conditions, then we might have systems that capture that systematically and and you know are able to play back from the pharmacy organisations exactly how much of that activity has been done. But are we in the immediate care business or are we in the long-term care business or are we in both? And then you lay public health on top of that, public health and prevention, and you've got the whole three three areas there. And I, I'm, you know, I think the summit is a great idea. Let's hope something comes out of it that everybody collectively can stick to. Because again, I'm sure we've all had instances of, of uh, talking to people who are trying to think about the future of pharmacy and they say, well, you know, it's, we're just not entirely clear you know what the consistent message is of where pharmacy would like to go i was talking to somebody the other week last week about that and that line is going to appear in you know the, the next issue of, of p3 because there are people out there key stakeholders in pharmacy who say that who's speaking for pharmacy it's a long long-standing issue yeah very long-standing issue I mean, we, we have been here before rob haven't we white papers forward view call for action uh let's hope the crisis means that we have some real momentum behind this kind of future piece because it is important. Um, Arthur, what did you think of what the president had to say? Yeah, I love a white paper. Um, <laughs> well, I thought I was, I mean, I was impressed. This isn't unique to the RPS, but it was impressive to hear just how quickly uh, they be, and responsibly they adapted to the crisis and completely overhauled the way they work and the way they serve their members. Um, and I, it struck a familiar note the way she said all of their work is COVID nineteen now. I think you know for all of us in the press, that's that's definitely the case. So that that resonated. Yeah, thanks, Arthur. Thanks, Rob. So let's move on to good week. Who's had a good week? Uh, I'll go first uh, this time. For me, it's been a good week at last for this year's pre-registration pharmacists who've had a, a very difficult. And worrying time of it, obviously, with the COVID crisis being so disruptive for them in terms of their, their experience and registration. So welcome news that there's now at least some clarity for them with the GPHC publishing the eligibility criteria for the provisional registration. They can be a responsible pharmacist, for example. They can't be a locum. And there's guidance for employers too. Still more information to come out. Um, we are waiting for standards for employers from the GPHC. Uh, details about the assessment too still need to come out, um, which is going to be online this year. But welcome clarity at such a difficult time for the pre-regs. So a good week for our pre-reg trainees Rob, who's had a good week for you? I think it's been a great week, Richard, for Barnard Castle. <laughs> so it's got to be on. It's got to be on our um, our destination list now, hasn't it? I mean, you know, anywhere that is both a tourist attraction 
and, a, and functions as a sight test has got to be seen to be believed. So Barnard Castle uh, in, in the northeast is a destination that we're all going to be looking forward to going as soon as we're allowed to, as soon as we're actually allowed to travel 250 miles to do something that we'd like to do for ourselves. Uh, so yeah, Barnard Castle, great week. Fantastic uh, uh, for the people up there. Fantastic choice, Rob. I was thinking of going up this weekend. Actually, I don't think there's nothing to stop me, is there? Um, Arthur, who's had a good week for you? I'm going to get behind Rob Barnard Castle. If it's good enough for Dom, it's good enough for me. <laughs> well, see you up there then. All right, let's finish with any other business. No, chaps, we've had some great feedback um, from our listener on the pod. Uh, the, the music, though. Our listener. <laughs> our, our one listener. The music seems to be um, dividing opinion, which uh, is a bit strange because we, we really like the music. But, but one comment came in to me uh, over the weekend uh, about the music. It went like this. Um, it sounds like the introduction to a sub-punk anthem for intellectually challenged headbangers yeah what's wrong with that <laughs> that hurts that hurts I, I can see sam who picked it looking mortified there so look what i say to everyone out there um, if you feel you can do any better uh, send something in a piano solo or a guitar riff or a, a socially distanced magical choir word painting uh, send it in and we'll feature it on the pod have either of you two spotted anything out of the ordinary this week uh, the response to to Cummings' little jaw has been quite funny. So, like the Barnard sign castle done is one of those you know those triangle uh, side tests in the optician with all the letters. But uh, there's been a lot of funny response to that. Oh, I bet I've seen some great stuff, and uh, this will make you laugh. Uh, um, guess who was uh, defending him on the radio this morning? One of our favourite ministers, Mister Jenrick. Oh, excellent! It, it went. It went, it went terribly. It went terribly. But, but what do you expect? Uh, well, I, I did think I did, I did. I couldn't work out what was worse, actually, being caught for this or being defended on. Was it Sunday by Grant Shapps? <laughs> Why not, indeed? Uh, the man who, when he got up to some interesting stuff in his own career, reinvented a whole new persona for himself. Uh, so... Maybe uh, Mr. Cummings could have done that first and then pretended that somebody else was in uh, the northeast rather than him. Um, yeah, I mean, oh, jeepers, you know, I just think it's like a heart sink thing, isn't it? I mean, I've spoken to members of my, you know, spoken to my family, uh, my sister and, uh, you know, even my daughter in Singapore. She'll be listening to this at some point, I think, in the next week. Uh, and, you know, the whole story's just gone around. You just think, oh, for goodness sake, you know, 10 weeks of this, people behaving themselves, and then this happens. Anyway, we shouldn't talk about it anymore because it's just annoying. I mean, it's it's in Ireland, it's not here, but my mum's auntie died the other week and she couldn't go to the funeral. And, I mean, it's the same rules that are in place, so it's a bit, it's a bit galling kind of to see that. I tell you, I, I, I tell you what, we have, we have talked, there's something I did notice, I don't know whether you've seen it, but... I think we've talked about her before on the on the pod. Uh, Jacinda Arden is doing doing an interview this week, uh, and there is a five point eight on the Richter scale earthquake going on. And uh, she, just have a look at it. You know, this is a brilliant video because she kind of pauses while the, the whole place is shaking. And the interviewer says, "Are you okay?" And she went, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fine. I'm in a I'm in a good building here. It's quite strong. I think I'm not underneath any lights." Let's carry on, kind of thing. Class. 
Class. The woman is class. That is, that is class. Is that a metaphor for the way that New Zealand have handled the crisis, I wonder? I must check that out. That, that sounds great. And on that uh, earth-moving note, that just about wraps up this week's pod. Thanks, as always, to Rob and Arthur. Uh, Neil's fans will be pleased... Cheers, Richard. Neil's fans. Neil's thank you. Neil's fans will be pleased to know uh, he'll be back next week. Uh, but the pod is available on the Pharmacy Magazine website, all the usual download sites, Spotify, iTunes, etc. Just search on Pharmacy Magazine Talking Covid. We'll be back soon. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>